Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friday, the 6th of August. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Where in the word are you today? You know I like to ask the question. You know, you know I like to know. You could let me know on the text line, 877-933-2484. Where in the word are you today? I was talking yesterday afternoon with a young woman. She has reached the uh, age and stage of life. I will describe it as, you know, you're you're after college. You're in your first real job. You've kind of finally figured that out. You're living in an apartment. You're kind of by yourself in a city that's not, you know, the place that you grew up. So you've made an effort to make some new connections. You've joined a church. You've involved yourself in some things. But then the longing begins. And if you've already been through this stage of life, you know what I'm talking about. Um, That longing to be sharing your life in a meaningful way, to be building a life together with someone else. Uh, It started to weigh, it has started to weigh upon her. So we were talking about love, real love, steadfast, enduring, forgiving, self-giving, mutual affection, upbuilding, long-haul love. And if you're married, hopefully you know uh, about that as well. So as you might imagine, our conversation included a look at some of the couples in Scripture and certainly marriage as that reality to which we all look in terms of eternity, the bride of Christ, what that's going to look like, who Christ is as the bridegroom. Talked about, you know, the real longing that God gives us to have a shared life. And we talked about 1 Corinthians 13 because she brought it up. And so we walked through that passage and we were both actually drawn to verse 6, which I have to tell you um, is maybe not the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that many people would be drawn to. But the days in which we live drew us to verse 6. So here it is. It, real love, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Just consider all, just for a moment, just consider all of the places, all of the ways that our culture rejoices in, elevates, approves, celebrates unrighteousness when it comes to the definition and expression of love. Now, conversely, consider the myriad ways that truth, remember the verse here, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now, consider for a moment the myriad ways that truth is contested, scoffed, repudiated, challenged, and ultimately denied in the culture today. So in this young woman's case, love, love, the prospect of finding a godly man who shares a love of God, the the God who is love, a man who wants to discover and explore the mutual life of love that grows out of a couple's mutual love of God, that kind of love 
is a casualty of the culture war we're living today. So pray for her and pray for other young men and women like her. Pray for one another today. What's it going to look like for you and I today to enter into the culture as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to rejoice in the truth in the midst of a world that's rejoicing in unrighteousness? The good news is we have exemplars. We can look to Paul and Peter and James and John and Priscilla and Aquila. We can look to Luke and John and Philip and uh, Barnabas. I might have said John twice. Okay, look twice. It's going to look like generations of Christians who've gone before us and lived lives marked by the unfailing love of God, love that is patient and kind and not arrogant or boastful or irritable or rude or resentful, none of that. We're going to be the people who function as a living demonstration of the gospel, living, visible, substantial demonstration of the gospel. Today, in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, because people are still desperate for the same thing, an unending, full, uncompromising, real, lasting love. And we know his name, and his name is Jesus. So this is a love worthy of the day before us. We're going to turn now to some of the challenges that we face in the world and the confusion of it. Steve West is an editor of World Magazine's Liberties Roundup, and he joins me next on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Steve West. Steve is an attorney in private practice in Raleigh, North Carolina. He served as a federal prosecutor for 34 years. He also uh, serves as a legal correspondent for World. And you guys know we love World Magazine and all that they're doing. He's a graduate of World Journalism Institute, and he uh, puts together their Liberties Roundup, which is one of the newsletters that you can subscribe to at World Magazine, and I highly recommend it. So we're going to look at the Liberties Roundup this week with Steve West. Steve, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's delightful to have you. Let's um, let's start off in Virginia. Um, read, read people in on what's going on in terms of the school district there and the question about transgender, people who identify as transgender. Yes, Virginia has really become a hotspot for an issue uh, that has popped up all over the country, and that is transgender guidelines uh, that are being pushed into different school districts. And these are basically um, a challenge for many people because they require uh, students to be addressed by their preferred pronouns. They also, and more importantly, perhaps uh, require uh, opening of lockers and uh, locker rooms and uh, bathroom facilities to students based on their chosen pronouns. So if they identify as a particular gender, that's the bathroom that they get to use. And there's other ways in which uh, they have to be, they can't be segregated by gender or any of that kind of thing. So this has proven to be a difficult challenge uh, for many districts around the country. And the dispute really has come has come to rest there in Virginia and come and like I said, it's become a hot spot there for that. Back so, in uh, March, go ahead. I say back in March of this year, the Family Foundation of Virginia challenged the state school board's uh, process and uh, the law that they passed in order to uh, 
requiring all the school districts in the state to adopt these uh, these guidelines. And uh, they they um, challenged it because they didn't really allow any public comment or they didn't take into consideration the many critical public comments about this. And the court last week rejected the lawsuit as premature and said just because the model, model policies are directed only to school boards, they can't affect or aggrieve anybody other than the school boards. So only the school boards can sue about them. So these school boards are supposed to adopt policies that are comprehensive and and uh, inconsistent with these state guidelines. And uh, many of them have rejected these guidelines. So I want to focus in on on one aspect here, and that is that the judge ruled the suit is premature. Here's the challenge. There's other stuff out there that um, does not does not seem to be weighed in the same way. Uh, and so can you talk about the, the judgment or the judging of a suit to be premature? Because that might be something that people have never heard of before. Yeah. That uh, sometimes the judge refers to that as standing. And so here standing just means that you don't have a right to file this lawsuit because you haven't yet been injured or maybe will not be injured by this particular law or policy. And so what the judge said here is, you know, the, the school boards themselves are the only ones who are required to do anything. And therefore, since they haven't adopted these guidelines yet, uh, there's nobody, there's no parent that or student that's affected by the guidelines. So it's a way of in some ways, it's a way for the court to duck out of a suit uh, when it's premature. But that's really not uh, that's not the case in the law. There's many uh, throughout the civil rights era. There were many laws that were challenged that were uh, challenged by folks who had not been injured yet. You don't have to actually wait for an injury to happen all the time in order to challenge a law. Which makes sense to me. If I can if I can tell in advance that something is going to be injurious, I should be able to bring that up and the law should be challenged uh, before it causes injury to someone. So I, yeah, I love that you have highlighted that and I really appreciate it. Um, the other aspect of that that I would point out is kids move through school pretty quickly. And the fact that we have to wait until a student um, is injured by something, you know, as slow as things move, that kid is not just only going to be through that school year, but probably several others before the issue is resolved. And then they're damaged forever. Like this is, the, you know, it seems to me there should be a priority placed upon issues that affect kids because, like, right, kids grow up. That's right. Exactly. You know, if you're if you're a, a mother of uh, two daughters who uh, who are going to be, you know, perhaps exposed to a a male student in the girl's bathroom, then you're concerned about them right now. And uh, a lawsuit that might have to wind its way through or through the courts uh, for a number of years is not, uh, you don't, you're not willing to wait. You're going to pull your children out of school if you're able to. Some people are not able to pull themselves, their schools, students out of public school, so they don't have a choice. And so they need an answer, you know, right away. So we're going to take a very brief break. Steve West and I, when we come back, we're going to talk about something going on um, with Amazon and Amazon's charitable donation program. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Steve West. Um, Steve, let's turn our attention to the article you have posted at uh, at World Mag, um, in the roundup, we're going to talk about the uncharitable 
exclusion. First of all, let's start with what is Amazon Smile and what kind of varieties of charities are included on the list? Okay, Amazon Smile is just a is a program that Amazon has where you know different um, charities can or you can designate a charity uh, when you buy something from Amazon that Amazon will give a portion of the proceeds to that charity. I forget the amount of the proceeds, but there's it's a wide variety of charities that you can do that with. In fact, most charities you can do that with. It's only that uh, Amazon has um, concluded that certain charities um, are not ones that they will support, that they will give to on your behalf. And they've done that based on a, a hate group designation by the Alabama-based um, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. All right. So I just clicked on my Amazon Smile account. And apparently, as of the 4th of August, I have generated $20.05 for the charity designated of my choice. All U.S. charities have re- have received $262 million, a little over that now. Uh, and worldwide, charities have received $293 million as of the end of June through the Amazon Smile program. So there, there is real money flowing to real nonprofit organizations. So the conversation here centers on one particular charity uh, based in the state of Florida. So tell people what is going on in this particular case. Okay, so this particular charity is the uh, basically Coral Ridge Ministries. It's a ministry that was founded by D. James Kennedy, which many people will be familiar with. He was a pastor, founded a church in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and he founded this ministry, and he had a syndicated television show called The Coral Ridge Hour that's still on. It's called Truths That Transform Now. So this particular ministry was labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, a designation that was picked up by Amazon and a number of other groups. And the reason that their name labeled a hate group is because they oppose homosexual conduct. So that's hate. If you disagree, they disagree with the homosexual agenda. And so they're labeled a hate group. Amazon just simply picks that up and, you know, bakes, basically blacklists any of the groups that are on that, that hate list or hate, yeah, hate list that's published by Southern Poverty Law Center. And All right. So, so that, yeah, that no-no list, that, uh, that hate group list made by the Southern Poverty Law Center includes a lot of other recognizable uh, ministries as well. Right. Uh, you know, just for example, the one of the, the large religious liberty law firms in the country, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, is on that list, as well as the Family Research Council and another religious liberty firm, Pacific Justice Institute, out in California. So it, it cuts a broad path through uh, these, these um, charitable, charitable groups. All right. So if you're listening right now, you recognize all of them as guests of the program, Alliance Defending Freedom, Family Research Council and uh, Pacific Pacific Justice Institute. Obviously, we're not promoting hate. We're promoting um, we're promoting truth and that which is aligned not only with reality, but with the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so part of the challenge I think we face, Steve, is, you know, it's really hard to imagine that I'm going to function completely apart from Amazon. It is it is woven into much of life these days. Um, When you think about the ways in which the average person can respond to this kind of headline, uh, to headline news, you know, what do you think is a reasonable way to respond to this? 
Yeah, it's a difficult matter. Like you say, it's so woven into our lives, you know, to use Amazon. It's very easy to use Amazon. Uh, but there are other other um, uh, sellers that you can use and also support local sellers of books and other products. So that's that's one way that I react to it. It's a small thing. But many things that we do as people are small things, and yet added together, they can amount to something. So that's what I would encourage. And I'll, you can also let Amazon know what you think about that as well. Uh, you know, they're they're subject to public opinion just like anybody else. So that's one thing you can do. All right. I like both of those suggestions. Those are really good. Um, is there another story on the Liberties list that you want to highlight today? Because we have several we could talk about. But, you know, sometimes it's fun to let to let you choose. Yeah. Well, there's, there is one other story, um, and it's actually one I'm writing about now. There there are three new cases before the Supreme Court. Um, well, actually, the petitions have been filed. The court hasn't necessarily taken them. They were just filed this past week, and all of these are cases that we want to watch. It doesn't mean uh, that the court's going to take these cases, but they may. Uh, two of them uh, involve uh, em- employees at uh, various uh, religious institutions. There's a Gordon College which is an evangelical Christian college up in Massachusetts. Uh, and there's a, a mission, a historic mission, uh, called Seattle United Gospel Mission out in Washington State. And then there's a church called New Life Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. But the issue in all of these cases is how much religious autonomy, how much independence in terms of decision-making should these churches or ministries have in terms of their employees. And so the court has an opportunity to take one or more of these cases and try to um, uh, delineate how much autonomy these churches have in terms of hiring, firing uh, employees. For example, in Gordon College, there was a professor at Gordon College who who uh, was seeking uh, seeking tenure, a full professorship, and they denied her that, so she filed a lawsuit. And they, they told the court, uh, Gordon College told the court at that point that this this uh, particular, uh, all the faculty at the uh, school, including this professor, fell under the ministerial exception, which is a a, uh, a term used in the law to refer to somebody who is serves some in vital religious functions. And if they do, if they do fall under that, like an ordained pastor would fall under that, and many other people would fall under that, then they can't file a lawsuit about their hiring or firing or some other employment decisions taken against them. So it sort of preserves the autonomy of the school to do that. Seattle United Gospel Mission, same type of thing. Somebody had applied for a job there. Uh, they didn't agree with the uh, code of conduct that that mission had. They didn't agree necessarily with the statement of faith they had. And so they declined to hire them, and then they filed a lawsuit against them. And In both these cases, the school and the mission lost the case. And in New Life Church, there, were, uh, there was a youth pastor and his wife that were serving the church in college ministry. Uh, they actually were not ordained. And so, um, when the when the Virginia uh, when Virginia applied their tax exemption to the parsonage in which they lived, they said it wasn't tax exempt because these these were not ministers. So, in all of these cases, we have uh, concerns about you know how how autonomous are these religious groups, and and I think they should you know receive a high degree of autonomy in their decisions involving people that do any type of ministry. Uh, in the organization. So that's, that's three to watch as the Supreme Court comes back in October and, and determ- we determine whether or not these cases are actually going to be heard by the court. It's an area that, that is out there and uh, the court dealt with last year in another case. And so we're hopeful that um, the court may deal with it in one of these cases. 
So helpful to have uh, you and others keeping an eye on what is happening in places and spaces, you know, while the rest of us are canning peaches and doing back to school shopping. So we really do appreciate it. Um, I love the Liberties Roundup. Thank you so much for putting it together week in and week out. Uh, You guys can sign up. You can find it at World Magazine, which is World News Group, WNG.org. You're looking for the Roundups and you're looking for the Liberties Roundup. Or you can just look for Steve West. He's the editor of it. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Carmen. I enjoyed it. It's really helpful. All right, we got to take a very brief break for Knowing God with Greg Laurie, and then we'll be right back. Okay, that uh, teaching by Greg Laurie reminded me of all kinds of ridiculous knock-knock jokes. You know, Jesus is standing at the door and he knocks and, you know, it's knock, knock. Who's there? Jesus. I mean, just there's a litany of Jesus knock, knock jokes. If you haven't heard one, then just make one up. It'll make you smile and laugh. Um, But ultimately, let him in. Like, right? If you haven't already, let him in. Let him in. Let him in. Uh, Okay. Next up, Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University and Theo Latte. We're going to do the weekend worldview reader. Well, we're also going to talk about the redemption of a rooster. Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's one of the most insidious traps parents fall into. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm talking about comparison. It's easy to look at someone else's family and use them as a measuring stick. They eat dinner together every night. They look like a Norman Rockwell painting. Your family's lucky if they grab a stale pizza before running out the door. The other kids never speak an unkind word. They're always obeying mom and dad. But your kids, of course, seem to be testing the boundaries all day long. Let me calm your nerves a little here. That other family, they're not as good as they look. It's not worth getting caught up in comparison. Get back to watching your own kids. They're exactly what God wants for you today. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Dan DeWitt. You know him and his weekend worldview reader, which you can find at theolatte.com. Dan, I'm curious to know, were you awakened this morning by a rooster? No. So we are back in Ohio, but if it were yesterday— You didn't didn't bring a rooster with you? Like, I don't know. You were surrounded by roosters (laughs) in Louisville, and so I'm a little surprised one did not— Do you know how to transport a rooster? Maybe that would be the the more important conversation of the day. In my belly. (laughs) Mm. No, dude. Deep fried. So you you hug— you hug the rooster and then you you wrap him up like a little burrito and you tuck the edges of the towel. I'll take a rooster normally. like a burrito. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, oh. I so mean, like, tell us this. Tell us the story because it's really good. Well, so you, you and I have talked about the book that I wrote about John chapter twenty one, um, which is really about Peter being forgiven and restored and given hope and a future. And it's one of those chapters of the Bible. I thought I had kind of like, you know, like a, a sponge that you twist as hard as you can. I thought I'd gotten every dropout. And this two Sundays ago, um, 
the Sunday before last, my we went to my wife's home church, and her pastor, who's a, become a dear friend over the years, Rob Rosenbaum, Rob preached on John 21. And so he said, open your Bibles to John 21, as preachers do. And so I opened there, and you know, I don't think I had arrogance, like you can't teach me anything, but I don't think I was expecting a new insight. You know, I thought I'm going to be reminded of truths that I've thought about before. And he began talking about the beauty of the fact that Jesus is restoring Peter, and it's at dawn. It's as the sun's coming up, and as the Bible describes there, Jesus had breakfast for them. And he pointed out something that I'd stinking never seen um, in all my hours spent in John 21, that what would have been happening at that moment would have been the rooster crowing. And so now for Peter, the sound of a rooster crowing was really just a reminder of his failure. But now Jesus forgives Peter um, while at the sunrise, while the rooster's crowing, and you have the redemption not only of Peter, but also of this rooster. So for the rest of Peter's life, as my friend pointed out, that would become now forevermore a reminder of Jesus's forgiveness. And man, that was really powerful for me. You can read a little more about the redemption of the rooster at theolatte.com. Um, I loved the uh, what you shared in there about uh, being in a neighborhood where, you know, people are from all over the place, first of all, and, and everybody yeah. has a rooster. And, and you know, they kind of crow all day long, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, they, they certainly— Okay, so here's what's going on. Because I, because I live on a farm, I, I actually know of, of what I speak now. <laughs> um, so not only do roosters crow all day long, they start crowing before the sun rises. It's not like they're yeah. waiting for the sun to, you know— come over the edge of the horizon. And when there are multiple roosters in an area, they all keep getting up earlier and earlier and earlier to be the first (laughs) one that crows. And so I can tell you what we call that at our house. We call that the cockadoodle duel. Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) So I'm just letting, I'm just letting a little insight here. Um, It's, it's not helpful to have two roosters within, I don't know if roosters have ears, but within earshot of one another, because they will duel. There's this cockadoodle dueling that goes on. And uh, so anyway, um, I will say that one really sad note here, um, and listeners who were paying attention last week and heard the story about uh, the bobcat, um, who we're calling oh, Bob the no. Cat, even, even though Bob the Cat turned out to be a girl. Um, so I don't know, she's Bobette. But um, we had a bobcat. We didn't know we had a bobcat. We knew we had some... We knew we had some uh, predator because Big Red, who was like a 20 pound, he's a big rooster. Like he weighed a lot. He's a big hefty dude. And when he fluffed himself up and spread out his wings, I mean, he was a, he was formidable. Like he was a, he had these huge spurs. Nothing was going to mess with Big Red. And then one day, poof, Big Red was gone. And I discovered that Big Red was gone because there was no crowing. Like all of a sudden I was like, it is way too quiet on the farm. Where is the rooster? And I went out there, and there's no rooster. And so we knew we had a predator. We knew we had a pretty good-sized predator because uh, Big Red is nothing to be messed around with. And we then discovered a couple of days later that it was, in fact, a bobcat, and um, the there is no longer, I will say, a threat. <clears throat> the threat has been— <laughs> yeah. I was wondering <clears throat> the, how you discovered that Bob was actually Bobby. 
Yes, because the ma- because the um the the boom boom that lives in the house took care of the bobcat. But there you I go. See. This is it's you know we live in the country. It's um <laughs> there's uh <laughs> there's there's lessons to be learned every single day. All right, let's talk about the disproportionate influence of Christianity in Hong Kong. With no segue, just jump right in. Yeah, so there was an article um, last month in the Wall Street Journal, and it is about. Um, the fact that there's only about 12% of people in Hong Kong who identify as Christian, and yet they're having a significant, a pronounced influence in terms of demonstrations, in terms of attempts um, to influence the broader culture. And so this article just highlights why is a minority group in Hong Kong having so much influence? And so people can find the link to that story and read more details. It starts out talking about um, Joseph Chang, who um, eventually had to move his family to Australia to avoid persecution. Um, but the role that he's had in influencing social movements that are really inspired by Christian values. So Joseph Chang says one of the um, benefits to the um, the missionary work that's happened in China over the years that resulted in Christian schools, often Catholic schools, is that you have people, even if they're not Christian, who are influenced by Christian values. So how much influence can you have as a Christian? Well, let's look at China and see where our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are having a pronounced influence, and they're only 12% of the population. So I talk about that and have links to that article in the Weekend Worldview Reader. Okay, I found—well, um, I mean, I didn't find him, but I've discovered somebody that I think um, we should be paying attention to, and this Hong Kong story made me go, like, track him down and see what he's up to right now. Um, does the name Kenneth— Chu, X U mean anything to you? Have you heard of him? You know, I I know I've heard that name, but I couldn't give you any details off the top of my head. But man, that sounds yeah. familiar. Okay, so I'm putting him on your radar. Like we need to we need to go be his friend. I don't know if he needs friends or wants friends, but but I want to be. Let's do it. I want to track him down. So he's an evangelical Christian. His uh, parents are first generation Chinese immigrants, mm-hmm. and he is like legit. He's one of the guys involved in bringing the case against Harvard related to um, Asian American admissions. And he's just so clear. He's 23 years old and he's just so rock solid. I just, anyway, I heard him interviewed by somebody else and I was like, oh, I got to scratch around and find somebody that knows him. So I'm going to put him on your radar and maybe if he's on both of our radars, one of us can, you know. We're just going to openly go and try to track him down and be his friend. There you go. Because yes, he is if, clearly— if you, know, if you know Mr. Chu, please make a connection for me and Carmen. <laughs> exactly, Let him know right? we want to be his friend. <laughs> we want to be his friend. Okay. <laughs> we got to um, take a very brief break. When we come back, more with my friend Dan DeWitt and the Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at Theolatte.com. We'll be right back. You're my defender. Continue my conversation with Dan DeWitt. You can find the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. That's like theology and coffee, which go particularly well together in the morning. Um, so I see at uh, on, the, on the Weekend Worldview Reader a number of articles that you have teed up for uh, folks to read and conversations today. Um, one of the ones that is on here that we have not talked about is Facebook's new target, the religious experience. Can you tell people what's going on there. It's a, it's in the New York Times, which means that for a lot of people, it's going to be behind a paywall. Yeah. And so I actually, I found a, um, a website called Newsblock that has, lists that article. 
that you can Excellent. access it. So even though I have parenthetically, you know, parentheses, you know, that it started, that it's on the New York Times, when you click on the link, it'll bring you to a website that you could actually view the article. And I think most people can identify with what is going on simply by thinking about the pandemic, how much of relational connectivity and even streaming services were happening on Facebook. And so for a lot of us, I know for us at our church, we stream to Facebook and we've continued to do so even now that services are back in person. And so Facebook's wanting to make the most of that. And so they're wanting to, um, to utilize this platform to enhance people's religious well-being. And so this article talks about that. It's not all as sinister as you might initially think. I mean, um, Facebook can be really helpful in terms of this. I mean, for me, when I um, have to do a lecture that I record, I always do it on Facebook because their platform is so dependable, whereas our um, educational platform isn't always quite as dependable. And so this article talks about that reality and how Facebook is really putting a lot of energy into that. The challenge, there are challenges, of course, where Facebook is wanting to um, to foster conversations. They're also going to attempt to regulate those conversations. So it's certainly something to keep our eye on. But a lot of ministries are taking advantage of Facebook, and you'll find quotes from ministry leaders who make that very point of how helpful Facebook's been during the pandemic. So I remember at the very uh, beginning of this uh, event that we now call, of this experience that we now call uh, the pandemic, Facebook actually like sent physical equipment to thousands of urban churches in particular, churches that um, were minority led and minority focused and and offered them free training, provided uh, technological support in order that they would be able to do what, frankly, more well-resourced congregations were already prepared to do. And of course, in the back of my mind, as I was, you know, thrilled that congregations were receiving this kind of material support and and then also technological support, it it immediately occurred to me, you know, that's not a hand that just freely gives. There's going to yeah. be um, a, an effort there to there will be strings attached to those gifts. And so I do think it's good for us to be mindful that, you know, whatever platform we use, particularly if it's one that's, quote unquote, free um, it's not free. There's something they're getting some benefit from having you there. And as soon as they do not have a benefit from having you there, you won't be there anymore. As soon as they see your presence there as in any way hostile to what they're trying to do or their agenda or their values, you'll be gone. And so I think everybody needs to be prepared to be deplatformed. Mm-hmm. And then where would you go? Like, where are you going to relaunch when that happens? Well, and absolutely. And that's where, you know, at this point in time, this is a very helpful platform. I'm not a alarmist to say, you know, run from all social media because your people are already using Facebook. Now, young right. people might be on other platforms, but you're absolutely right. We just need to be aware of it. And we also need to realize that a virtual religious experience is not what God intended for us. And so when we have to do it that way, we do. Um, But the end goal is that we're actually seeing each other in person um, and that the local church is where it's at. It's not on Facebook. But thank praise be to God that we've been able to use platforms like YouTube and Facebook to stay connected, um, even though there are real challenges. And with numbers going back up, who knows what conversations we'll be having three months from now 
about that very thing. So down under related post um, in your rooster piece, which again, the redemption of the rooster is just well worth a visit today at theolatte.com. Um, you got you you remind us of some other things that you have written in the past. And one of the things that um, that caught my attention on this particular list was three reasons I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I just felt like, Dan, like it's never um, it, it, this never this should never get old to us. It should never get old for us to to be prepared and ready to articulate why we what we believe, why we believe what we believe and to do so in a compelling way. So maybe just a little encouragement today for people to write down, if they've never taken the time to do it, why we believe the gospel, why we've received the gospel, why we acknowledge Jesus, why we believe in the resurrection, and maybe you do so by a demonstration. Yeah, you know, and it's a great segue because the um, story of Peter being forgiven only makes sense if Jesus rose from the dead. And so when I wrote that story for kids in the book, um, The Friend Who Forgives, I put it this way, um, talking about how sad Peter was that he had denied Jesus. And I say, but Peter didn't stay sad because Jesus didn't stay dead. And it's the resurrection that turns a failure, a colossal failure like Peter had committed into redemption and into an opportunity for not only a second chance, but a millionth chance and hope. And so in the article, Three Reasons I Believe in the Resurrection, I talk about three things. I believe in the resurrection for historical reasons. Second, I believe in the resurrection for sociological reasons. And then third, I believe in the resurrection for existential reasons. And in in a nutshell, historical reasons, I believe the resurrection actually happened. And if it didn't happen as a historical event, then it's of no significance at all. Um, some, you know, liberal Um, theologians, I wouldn't define them as Christians for this reason. I've heard liberal theologians say, you know, we really don't care if Jesus actually rose from the dead Um, physically. What matters is that he has risen from the dead in our hearts in a poetic kind of sense. Well, that's foreign to the New Testament. So I believe in the resurrection first and foremost because it happened. And then if you look at the resurrection in terms of explaining, for example, what we talked about with Hong Kong, these... um, this amount of influence in terms of positive social change, the resurrection has led to massive movements that have have benefited human flourishing. And so there are sociological reasons for believing in the resurrection. And then finally, the resurrection makes sense of life. So I believe in the resurrection for existential reasons. And to quote C.S. Lewis and end with this, um, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Mm. That's the question. Um, in the, of, that's the worldview question. Do I see the resurrection, and then through the resurrection do I see everything else? If I were able to evaluate everything through the lens of the resurrection— I would have a genuinely redemptive gospel worldview. Mm-hmm. That's a question. And, Yet, yes, and the, <laughs> yes, and the gospel powerfully explains the human experience. And so, people sadly often adopt a way of seeing the world that denies their real existence. And so, I have a number of stories about what does it mean to be human. Um, 
the human experience makes sense in light of the gospel. It explains our lived experience, our hopes and aspirations. So helpful. We love talking with you. Dan DeWitt, thank you so much. Hey, are you gearing up for a new school year? I am leaving from here immediately to go to our first faculty meeting. <gasps> all right. Say hi to all the peeps. That's I so will. exciting. <laughs> That's so exciting. All right. First well, blessings on the new. That's so fun. First day of school for the teachers. All right. Well, let's uh, be praying blessings <laughs> over Dan and others um, like him, faculty members at all levels, everybody from preschool to graduate school. Let's be praying them all off this morning as they pack their little lunch boxes and I don't know, put on their little jackets with the little tweed elbows, whatever they do when they're Dan's age. Um, so blessings, blessings on your day. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be praying you up as you go forth. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Carmen. That's Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University and Theolatte.com. We'll be right back. All right, you guys have uh, called me out this morning. I recognize that Jesus standing at the door of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 is no joke. So for those of you who have texted and emailed and in every other way communicated, hey, Jesus knocking at the door of the church of Laodicea is no joke. Yeah, I didn't mean to make a joke of it. I apologize. Knock-knock jokes are funny, though, sometimes. Apparently, my referring to a knock-knock joke uh, in reference to Revelation 3.20 was not funny to many of you, so I take it back. No joke intended. I recognize that uh, that is an image of Jesus standing at the door of the church, right? Uh, So in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is addressing the church of Laodicea, from which he had been You know, well, frankly, he was on the outside of it. Jesus is standing outside the church. That is an image that should disturb us greatly, deeply, personally. And so I guess I'll just ask, you know, is Jesus standing outside of your church? And if so, let him in. Like he's the head of the church. Keeping him on the outside um, just proves nothing about him and a lot about us. And so my encouragement to us is to, yes, read Scripture in context, understand the Scripture in the context that it is not only first spoken, but continues to be spoken today. There you go. Hopefully I cleaned up the mess I made with the knock-knock joke uh, earlier during the program. Jesus does stand at the door and knock. Let him in. Let him in. All right, without the resurrection, none of it would matter. Jesus wouldn't be standing there doing anything. So let us be people who remember. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.